Okay, praise the Lord. Well, this morning, if you will open your Bible to Revelation chapter 3, we're going to get right in the book this morning, and I appreciate you being here again. Uh, we've been studying the book of Revelation for several months now. We're actually, uh, I think, 29 sermons out of Revelation, and we've made it to almost the end of chapter 3. And so, at this pace, this would be not even a snail's pace. We, we are making a snail look fast as it relates to biblical exposition, but that's okay. We're studying the seven churches found in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, and each of these seven churches uh, that, that Christ personally writes to has, has some things that we can learn from. As a matter of fact, each of those seven churches represent every type of church that have ever existed since the book of Acts. We ought to be able to look at those seven churches and glean some positive things if there's something positive that we can glean from any of those churches, we ought to be that kind of church. The things that Christ corrects out of each of those seven churches, we ought to be sensitive that Christ wants to correct us as a church. Amen? Okay, half of you are okay with that. We'll, we'll talk about that a little more. We, we, have to, we have to take the good and the bad, right? And, uh, and nobody likes correction, but we're going to see it in the text today that when God corrects a church... It's, not, it's one, motivated by his love, and two, it's for our benefit, right? It's the same as your children, right? If you, if you love your children, you correct them, you raise them right, you, you guide them in the right way, and when they, when they get out of line, you, you, you discipline them and correct them because you love them and you want them to head down the right path. And so we're, we're seeing Christ's love and care for his church, for his local churches through these seven churches. They also represent the entirety of church history. And so you've got the dates on the screen, but as we study each of these seven churches, what we see is kind of an overview of all of church history encapsulated in those seven churches. And, and we're not going to take the time to, to kind of rehearse all of that. Uh, you've been, most of you that have been here, you kind of understand that. But if you're new, go back and let me encourage you to listen to some of the previous messages. But, but the last church in those seven is the church of the Laodiceans. And that's what we started last week. We're studying the seventh church in the, in the city of Laodicea. It's the church of the Laodiceans, and it represents for us the time period from approximately 1900 AD to now. And so what that means, and if that's true, that all seven churches represent the totality of church history, what that means is, well, last time we checked, it's 2022, and, and, and the last church that's mentioned is the, the, church of Revel, or, excuse me, the Church of Laodicea, and that's the last church, and there's something very powerful that happens in Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1, and we're not going to talk about it yet, but let me just tell you, it's the last church mentioned, and if it's the last church, and it represents the last church age or time period, this is where we are, which means that this particular church has tremendous importance for us. Because we live in what we would call the Laodicean church period. We live in the last days, the last church period that's mentioned. And this church in particular has some things that we, as a, as a local church, and we as individual Christians, we really need to understand. And we really need to grab hold of, of what Christ says and, and Christ's handling of this church. Okay, And so, and so let's read the text. We're going to read Revelation 3, 14 to 22. I'm going to pray for us. And then we're going to get in the Word of God and study just a little bit. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 14. The Bible says, Under the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would that thou art cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I spew thee out of my mouth. Makes God sick. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched, miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. And anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see. Verse 19, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. We'll stop there. Let me pray for us. Father, we need you this morning, God. We, we profess, just as we've saying, that you are worthy. And uh, you're, you're worthy to receive all blessing and honor and glory and power. 
And God, you're worthy to receive our, our time and our attention. God, you're worthy to receive our worship. I pray this morning as we gather together in your name that, that you, you edify your church, you build your church. God, may the word of God feed us today. God, correct us where we need correction. Build us up where we need to be edified. And God, more than anything, let us agree with you in your word. God, may your Holy Spirit teach us as only he can. Get me out of the way, Father. I pray that in spite of these stammering lips, God, you'd be glorified in everything that's said and done. And we trust you and we believe you and we ask it all in, in faith and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. So we're following a, a basic outline as we study each of these seven churches. And the first thing that we talk about is the church that's mentioned. And this is the church of the Laodiceans. And, and again, in your Bible, if you weren't here last week, the only other place in your Bible that, that Laodicea is mentioned, well, there's two other places, but but specifically, the book of Colossians mentions the church in Laodicea. And, and, and listen, there was a church in Laodicea. There were disciples in Laodicea. And yet, as we study this church in Revelation, when Christ looks at this church that existed and these disciples that were there, there's absolutely nothing positive that he says in this passage about this church. And that's a little concerning because... Because, man, why, why would Christ not commend his church? And, and just because there's a church there and disciples there, Christ actually assesses their situation. And, and he's like, yeah, there, there's nothing good that I'm seeing. And, and so we, we talked about that extensively last week. We said, secondly, that Christ reveals himself in a very certain manner to each of these seven churches. And the way that Christ revealed himself to Laodicea was threefold. Number one, he revealed himself as the amen, the amen. And, and the word amen just means truth. It means so be it. And the reason Christ revealed himself to, to Laodicea is because they needed the truth. And, and again, man, I don't, I don't have time for this rabbit trail, but can I just tell you that beginning around 1900 in church history, what began to creep into Christianity were variations of God's Word, historically, and, and Christians and churches and religious leaders began to move away from the sure words of God, and historically speaking, they lost their handle on the truth. And, and so it's important that you understand that Christ reveals Himself to this church as the amen, the truth, because Laodicea needs an infallible truth. They need something that's perfect, and it's preserved, and it's true, and it's something they can put their faith and trust in. And listen, today in our Christian culture, we don't know where truth exists. We don't know if it's in the Bible, and we don't know what version it is. We don't know if it's an ancient manuscript or an ancient language, and if so, which one? As a matter of fact, modern pastors, modern preachers, modern theologians do everything that they can do to discredit and destroy our faith because they can't really tell us what they're sure of and what we can believe. And yet, Christ says he is the amen. There is an absolute standard of truth, and certainly it is Christ, but Christ manifests it in his word. There is an absolute standard, and you can have it. And Christ wants you to have it. So he reveals himself as the amen. Secondly, he reveals himself as the faithful and true witness. And let me just make this statement. When we don't have truth, absolute truth, we won't have a faithful witness. We won't have a faithful witness. But Christ is the faithful witness. And then thirdly, he reveals himself as the beginning of the creation of God. And, and we mentioned last week, listen, cults would teach that Christ is the first created being of God. That's cultish. That's devilish. That's sensual. Christ is the beginning of creation because he's the one who created it. He is the source of creation. He is the one that, that manifested and created and made and sustained every single thing in this universe. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 17 says concerning Christ, who is the image of of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature, for by him were all things created. And all means all, 
And there's nothing that was created in heaven and earth, visible or invisible, that Christ didn't create. He is the... He is the creator, maker, and sustainer of all things. By the way, verse 17 says that he is before all things, and by him all things consist. Which means that if Christ is some kind of created being, well, things didn't consist before Christ. You get in a theological spin cycle. If you think that Christ is somehow a created being, and again, there, there's religions that teach that, Jesus Christ is God in the flesh, but he is eternal. His beginning didn't begin in Bethlehem. His beginning began never. He's eternal. He's God. He's absolutely God. And so then thirdly, we, we looked at this, the church and we said that, man, if there's a commendation that God gives us, we want to take note of that as a church, but, but unfortunately, when Christ looks at this church in all of his grace and all of his mercy, and God is gracious and merciful, there's just nothing. There's nothing that Christ can muster up and say positively about the church of Laodicea, and that, that breaks my heart because it may mean that there are churches in the 21st century that when God looks at it, yeah, they're saved, yeah, man, they, they come to worship services. Yeah, they do religious things. But, man, when Christ looks at it, there's just nothing good to say. And we have a hard time hearing that because we're Laodiceans, right? Because our perception is, man, we're rich, we're increased with goods, and we have need of what? Nothing. It, it's a perception issue for us as Laodiceans, and I'm a Laodicean, and so are you, and we struggle to see it the way God sees it. We think that material wealth and material possessions and, and lack of actual need is somehow spirituality. And yet the very opposite is true. It doesn't define spirituality or measure spirituality. As a matter of fact, many times it's, it's a marker that we're not spiritual. And so Christ looks at this church and he says, man, you, there's nothing good to say. And then he begins to correct this church. And we, again, this is all review from last week. But we saw that this church was a, a spiritually tepid church. They weren't hot and they weren't cold. He says they are lukewarm. And, and, and we mentioned last week that God is an extremist. And, and we struggle with that as Laodiceans, man. But God's an extremist, whether you like it or not, whether I like it or not. I mean, with God, it's either hot or cold. It's either up or down. It's either heaven or hell. It's either lost or saved. It's either reward or loss. And so Christ looks at this church and he said, man, you're like that cup of coffee that's going to be lukewarm by the end of this sermon. Yeah, it's there, but man, who would want to drink it? That's kind of gross. And I, and I think last week we kind of covered that, so we're not going to repeat all that. This was a self-deceived church because they said some things. And, and we mentioned last week, you know, when we studied the church at Philadelphia, that was the church of the open door. God put before that church an open door, but Laodicea, unfortunately, is the church of the open mouth because all they do is talk. Because thou sayest... And then we've got no shortage of that in Christianity. And it is interesting that when the Laodicean church began talking, the focus of their conversation was I. Me, 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 me. It's all about me. That's as much singing as I got right there. That's it. And I know that was a little off. And so all of our worship team, yeah, I won't be trying out on the microphone. Okay. Yeah, look what, look what they, verse 17, here's what, here's what the Laodicean church says. Man, I am rich. I am increased with goods. I have need of nothing. And can I just tell you that when you study the Bible, when you start seeing someone or something focusing on themselves, that ought to be a red flag. As a matter of fact, there's a key character in the Bible back in Isaiah chapter 14 that, that had a selfish problem that focused on himself instead of the worship of God. His name was Lucifer. You guys remember that guy? Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 to 14, it says, How thou art fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning, how thou art cut down to the ground, which didst weaken the nations. For thou hast said in thy heart, listen to this, I will ascend to heaven, into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the cloud. I will be like the most high. I, I, 
I. God warns us in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. He says, this know also in the last days perilous times shall come. We are living in the last days. Here's how you know. Verse 2 says, for men shall be lovers of their own selves. Love myself. And we haven't even got to the message yet. And I know some of you are looking at the time going, man, how are you going to do it? I don't know. But can I just tell you that in Laodicea, we love ourselves. As a matter of fact, in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 3, as, as, as Paul writes and begins to unpack what this mindset is that we struggle with, he said we're without natural affection, we're truce breakers, we're false accusers, we're incontinent, we're fierce, we're despisers of those that are good, we're traitors, we're, traitors, we're heady, we're high-minded. Listen, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. And listen, a Laodicean Christian would say, well, I love God. I'm a Christian. I've accepted his free gift of salvation. But the measure of your love to God is less than your love for pleasure. Whatever that is. Fill in the blank, man. And I'm not, I'm not trying to get on anybody. I'm just telling you that, that we struggle because Laodiceans love stuff. They love themselves, they're rich, they're increased with goods, and they have need of nothing. Man, we studied that historically Laodicea was a wealthy city. And historically speaking, and also prophetically as it pictures our period in church history, can I tell you that we've never had the resources that we have in Christianity that we have today. We have more buildings we have more buses, we have more vans, we have more bank account, we have more money than we've ever had in Christianity, ever. And yet, we have less power than any preceding period of church history and, and Christianity that we've ever had. Man, something's wrong, man. And we got to recognize that. Okay, I mean, this church was so independent. They didn't even need God. And, and again, we, we haven't got to the last part of the chapter, but in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20, do you know where Jesus Christ is in relation to this church? He's not inside the church. He's actually outside. He's standing at the door, knocking, trying to get in, trying to get them to hear his voice, trying to get them to open the door so that he can come in and fellowship. And listen, Christ is outside his church, but it's his church. Man, and Laodicean Christian, man, they like their brand of Christianity so much they would rather keep Jesus Christ at arm's length. We don't need Christ. We don't need his word. We don't need his work. Because in Laodicea, it's all about me. Man, that's, that's a tough pill to swallow as a Laodicean and here's what we do. And I, man, if we get to the message, we'll get to the message. I promise we'll get there. But can I just tell you, here's, way, here's the way we explain that away in modern Christianity. Because, because God is a God of extremes, and we don't like extremes. We don't like hot or cold. We like lukewarm right down the middle. Here's the word that we've injected into modern Christianity. We don't call it lukewarm. We call it balanced. We call it Balanced. Well, let me have a balanced Christianity. Let me have my stuff, but let me also have God. Let me have my Sunday morning worship, but let me have me the other six days of the week, six and a half days of the week. We call that balanced. Can I just tell you, there's nothing balanced about biblical Christianity. There's nothing balanced about it. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 1 says, If you're risen with Christ... Seek the things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. Does that sound balanced to you? It sounds pretty extreme to me. For the Christian, our motive, our, our affection, our sight ought to be on the eternal. It ought to be on the heavenly. And I know I'm talking to a room of Laodiceans this morning. Because I'm one too. But man, we struggle. 
who was it? David Platt wrote a book uh, several years ago. I hope you didn't buy it. It was called Radical, right? And when you read the book, you know, it like lays out this, oh, just an amazing walk of, with, with God and man, just counting the cost and laying it all aside to follow Christ and all, all that. He called it Radical. Well, to a Laodicean, it is Radical. The same book was written, I think, 40 years earlier, and it was just called Biblical Christianity. It was normal. But we've so radicalized what it means to follow Christ and be a disciple of Christ that, that man, to actually believe the words of this book and follow Christ in a way that, that he commanded us is some kind of radical idea. That's Laodicea. So what did Christ do, man? Christ corrected this church. He began by saying, Knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked? And again, their self-assessment was incorrect. And so Christ begins to correct this church, and then this is where we'll get to the message after the 20-minute introduction. This morning, we're going to begin the last part of this where we see that this is a Christ-counseled church. Look at verse 18. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire that thou mayest be rich. In other words, your material possessions aren't what make you rich. And white raiment that thou mayest be clothed and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. And anoint thy eyes with eye salve that thou mayest see. Okay, so let's break this down a little bit. This is a Christ-counseled church. The first thing that he says is, I counsel thee. This Laodicean church needed counseling. There's no shortage of that in modern Christianity. But let me give you the key in your notes. Biblical counsel can only come after biblical correction. Because the first thing that had to happen to this church was, let me correct where you're in error, where you're wrong. And again, as Laodiceans, we're not really interested in the correction part of a right relationship with God. We just want the counsel of God, right? Counsel me without correcting me, God. And and listen, we'll even pay for it. We'll go to Christian counselors. And listen, if you go to counseling, I'm not saying cancel your appointment. But what I am saying is God has a word for us, and there's things in our life that do need correction. And I understand this is a touchy subject this morning I'm about to engage in. But listen, I got a Bible, so I'm not too worried about it. Man, Laodiceans are quick to receive counsel, but man, we're not really interested in the correction. As a matter of fact, when we get confronted with biblical truth and and we sit through a message or we sit across the table from our discipler and we study the Bible and we see areas in our life that need attention and need correction, we would rather turn that off and just turn on the ear that says, give me more counsel, give me more instruction, give me more recommendation. Amen? Well, well, counsel comes at a certain point. It comes after correction. And for the Laodicean, that's really important. And, and here's what we'll do as Christians in Laodicea. We'll go to passages like Proverbs 11 and verse 14 that say, Where no counsel is, the people fail. But in the multitude of counselors, there's safety. And listen, that's a true verse because it's in the Bible. But we read that passage, and then we read into that passage as a Laodicean Christian, and we would say that, man, the multitude of counselors, well, that's got to be my prayer group, and that's got to be my pastors, and that's got to be my small group of friends that are my accountability partners, and I'll even throw in Facebook because, you know, there's information on there that you can find, and Instagram because there's stuff in there. And, of course, every now and then you stumble across a decent TikTok that's got a little bit of scripture or some kind of biblical truth. And these are my counselors. And at the end of the day, I Google it. And because, man, the top hit and the top search results got to be right. Or maybe I'll scroll down to the fifth one because I'm spiritual. And, and listen, if all of these counselors are in alignment with what I'm thinking, well, this must be right for my life. And I just described to you 99% of Laodicean Christians. We're interested in counseling. We just don't want the correction. Well, God says the correction comes first. And then the counseling comes. And can I just tell you, listen, if you've ever wedged Proverbs 11 and verse 14 out of context to fit your narrative, 
where you put all of your friends and opinions and humanistic reasoning into the scales of decision-making, and because everything seemed to tip one way, you just assume that that is of God? Friend, you may have made an error. Because the multitude of counselors that the Bible is talking about ain't what you think it is. You see, the person that's giving the counseling to the Laodicean church is Jesus Christ himself. And so here's the verse that you need to get down. Psalm 119 and verse 24 says, Thy testimonies also are my delight and my counselors. You reading that? Okay, okay, listen. If you want to talk about a multitude of counselors that God has given his church, you got 66 of them right here. you got 66 counselors. And God's given you his counselors. He's given you his testimony. He's given you his word that ought to be our delight, and it ought to be our counselors. So get this key in, in your notes for the Laodicean church. God's counsel is from the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's important. That's important for you to understand. And you say, man, get done with this sermon so I can go see my counselor this week. Okay, listen, you might be missing the point. And I'm not telling you to cancel your appointment. And I'm not telling you to stop going to counseling. What I am telling you is that as a believer in Jesus Christ... God has given you counsel from a particular person, Christ himself, and through a particular method, his word. Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6, the Christmas card verse, half of it, you know, because we like to quote half the Bible when we send our Christmas cards. So here it is. For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders... We never send that in the Christmas card. I wish we would, man. Like a picture of Jesus on the white horse with a sword and blood and Merry Christmas. <laughs> the government's going to be upon his shoulders. That's going to, Allie, that's going to be our Christmas card. No, she's, she's like, no. With a picture of our family, like behind. We could even Photoshop some horses. N no. Okay. I, okay, I'll, I'll get back to the past. I apologize. My wife is now, I'm in trouble. But listen, but listen, Christ is going to have the government on his shoulder. His name is going to be called Wonderful. Listen, Counselor. I mean, even the name of Christ is Counselor. And, and I don't know how you missed that. Well, you didn't read Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. I mean, as a Christian, you're not going to get a better Counselor. And listen, I'm not saying you don't go to somebody else, but listen, if you go to somebody else and they're not giving you Christ and they're not pointing you to what the Word of God says, can I just tell you, it probably ain't going to help. But I, that's hard to hear for a Laodicean. Because we, we'd rather have a multitude of counselors that exhaust a multitude of opinion and a multitude of philosophies than just humbling ourselves before the Word of God. Okay. So Christ says to this church, man, I counsel thee. And then the second thing he says to this church is, buy of me. Buy of me. And there's some things that Christ wants this church to buy. And so get this key in your notes. To get the effect of God's counseling in our life, it's going to cost us something. It's going to cost us something. And so God has counsel for this church, just like God has counsel for us today. And we want the effect of his counsel. We want it to be profitable in our life. Can I just tell you, in order to get the effect, it's going to cost you something. Let me give you Isaiah chapter 55, verses 1 through 2, and, and check this out. The Bible says, Ho, everyone that, is thirst, that thirsteth, come ye to the waters. And he that hath no money, Come. Come ye, buy and eat. Yea, come, buy, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Wherefore do you spend money for that which is not bread? 
and your labor for that which satisfieth not. Hearken diligently unto me, and eat that which is good, and let your soul delight itself in fatness. And man, listen, God is so good because God realizes our our condition. God looks at us as Laodicean Christians, and he's like, man, you're so self-deceived. You need correction. You need counseling. And actually, I've got a solution for you. It's going to cost you something. You say, wait a second. I thought I was rich. You just said I'm poor. How do I pay for something when I don't have anything? That doesn't seem like good math. If I go to the store and there's stuff that costs stuff and I don't have money, they don't generally let me leave with it. Right? It kind of seems weird that, that God is offering this, but God in his grace is so good. He says, if you're thirsty, come. Come to the waters. If you're hungry, come. And how do you buy something with no money? Well, let me tell you how you buy it. You buy it with your time. Because time's money, right? You ever heard that? You see, for the Laodicean, man, we don't, we don't put the time in into studying God's Word, into developing a right relationship with Christ. I didn't say we didn't come to church. I'm just saying we don't buy it. You see, you buy this, this nourishment, this fulfillment from Christ. You do it with your time. You do it with your desire. You buy it with your search. You buy it with your delight. Like, man, God, God is so good. He's offering freely, which my spiritual condition can't even afford. He's offering water. He's offering bread that will satisfy and nourish, nourish me. And I can buy it even though I'm spiritually bankrupt. But I do it with my time and my desire and my search. You know what, you know what ultimately it cost us? Our pride. Because we have to humble ourselves. We have to come to God in poverty of spirit. Because Christ's invitation is to come. But can I just tell you, when you're Laodicean and your focus is on you, you're full of pride. And it's going to be hard to get from God what he wants to give you when you don't humble yourself. Man, he asked these questions. Why do you keep wasting money on that which is not bread? In other words, why do you look for satisfaction and delight in things that aren't going to give it to you? Does that describe Laodicean Christianity? I mean, we can't wait to spend the next dollar. We don't have that dollar a week, and we spend it thinking that whatever we spend it on is going to somehow fulfill us, satisfy us. Can I just tell you, it won't. Why do you labor for that which satisfies not? And, and listen, men especially, we'll give ourselves laboring into a career. We'll labor in our hobbies. We'll labor in pursuit of things that we think will delight us. And when it doesn't, we just jump to the next thing. And God says, why are you doing that? Because at the end of the day, what we need can only come from Christ. There's water that refreshes there's bread that satisfies. John chapter 6 and verse 35, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger. And it begs the question, man, as Laodicean Christians, when we're spiritually starving to death and we're spiritually thirsty, it's not Jesus' fault. It's not Jesus' fault. We're listening to every other voice that comes into our head and into our life. Except for the testimonies that are to be our counselors. So Christ says to this church, man, I'm counseling you. I want you to buy some things from me. There's three things that Christ mentions. Number one, he mentions gold. Gold tried in the fire that thou mayest be rich. And remember, this Laodicean church was certainly not without material wealth. They were a very rich city historically. As it pictures us in, in churches in the 21st century, there's no shortage of money at our disposal, buildings at our disposal, buses, vans, technology at our disposal. And yet when Christ looked at that church, he says, no, you're not rich. You need gold. You need to buy gold that's tried in the fire. And again, that seems really odd. How, how can I buy something if I don't have any money? I thought I was rich. How do you want me to buy gold? 
That, that doesn't make sense. Well, well, generally speaking, gold in the Bible, the standard definition of gold is, is God's deity. And while there is a picture of that biblically, and that is true, you can't buy or earn deity. That's given to you by uh, 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 Christ himself. It's imputed righteousness. As you study the judgment seat of Christ, there are three rewards that withstand the judgment seat of, of Christ. Gold, silver, and precious stones. And so if you go back to the Old Testament and you just study gold throughout the Bible, you know, it was a golden calf that Israel bowed down to and falsely worshipped. It was a golden image that Nebuchadnezzar demanded the people to fall down and to worship. And in the book of Exodus, and I think in your notes I may have put as the reference Exodus. Did I put that in your notes? Just go home and read all of it. That's your homework. Because in Exodus, there are 88 verses that deal with gold, more than any other book in the Bible. Why is that important? Well, in the book of Exodus, the main thing that's being talked about is the tabernacle. It's the place that Israel came to worship God. And so get this in your notes. Gold represents our personal worship. I mean, everything in that tabernacle was covered in gold. All the furniture of the tabernacle is overlaid in gold. The altar and the cherubim, all covered in gold. Why? Because that's the place that worship happens. Gold represents and pictures for us worshiping the one true God. Gold is rewarded for worship. And if you were to go back to that Old Testament tabernacle, you didn't come into that place to worship God without a sacrifice. Now, now listen, thank God nobody brought any sheep this morning or goats or turtle doves. I know some of you are raising chickens. I don't see those in the Bible. I mean, as a sacrifice, I don't know. Maybe, maybe it falls under the fowl somewhere. I don't, I don't know. Thank God Henry didn't show up today. We, we could have got rid of Henry today. <laughs> but, but can I just tell you that the, the New Testament application of bringing that sacrifice is not an animal. Can I tell you who the sacrifice is in the New Testament? It's us. Right. Romans chapter 12 tells us, verses 1 and 2, Paul writes to the, to the Romans and he says, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You see, God is looking for a sacrifice. He gave his son as a sacrifice for our sin. And the calling for us is to lay down our life to worship him. Man, that's how you buy gold. That's how a Laodicean that thinks they're rich really becomes rich. Because all this stuff, the buildings, the cash, the cars, the cash, and the cribs, back in the day, the old MTV days, you guys remember that? I forgot you're Baptist, you don't watch MTV. But anyways, it was like cars and cash and cribs, right? And, and it was like, man, here's the stuff. All that stuff's temporal. Doesn't matter. What God wants is you. Gold represents our personal worship of God. Secondly, gold represents our personal persecution. Because in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 7, God says that your faith as a believer in Christ is something that's precious but when your faith gets tried, it's even more precious. Look at verse 7. It says that the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with... Christ told that church, buy of me gold tried in the fire. Might be found in the praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. You see, the Laodicean church that had need of nothing... What they really needed was a good dose of persecution. And can I tell you what will help us? You're not going to like it. A good dose of persecution. A good dose of persecution will help the Laodicean church. Because it will try your faith. And, and it will be found unto the praise and honor and glory of Jesus Christ. Now we just sang that. Do we believe that? Is he worthy? Well, he was before this sermon started. Is he still worthy? Man, listen, if he's worthy, 
then what that means is that when our faith is challenged, God, God tells us in 2 Timothy 3 and verse 12, Yea, all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Shall. Not might, not maybe. And I know we don't like extremes as Laodiceans, but that's a guaranteed promise that if you're living godly, you're going to suffer persecution, and that persecution is going to be found unto the praise and honor and glory of Jesus Christ. What am I willing to endure so that Christ is glorified in my life? And the Laodicean would say, I'm not willing to endure anything. I'm rich and increased with goods and, and have need of nothing. And yet God's counsel to that church is, you need gold that's tried in the fire. So if we're not living godly, we don't have an opportunity for persecution. Hello? This is tough, isn't it, man? Laodicea is kind of like looking in the mirror. It's like, ugh. This is really tough. The second thing Christ commands this church to buy of him is, is white raiment. You say, wait a second, I thought I already had that. As a believer in Christ, I'm covered in his righteousness. Absolutely. But this is something additional that Christ actually wants this church to invest in and buy. White raiment that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. I mean, when Christ saw this church, he saw them as naked, and they didn't even know that they were naked. I mean, it's that dream that you have. Anybody else have that weird dream? You don't have the weird dream of showing up at school being naked? Are you serious? Nobody else has that dream? Okay, yeah, all the weirdos, raise your hand. Yeah, you know, you, know, you know what I'm talking about. It's like you wake up in a cold sweat, like, that was so real. I felt like I walked right into class, and I was, nobody. Gosh, man. I'm losing. I'm losing this one this morning. Well, whether you've had the dream or not, here's what Christ says about Laodicea. You're naked. And I know you got your Sunday best on this morning. But the danger in the room is, the danger in the room is that spiritually we're still naked. Not that we're not saved, but man, we're struggling to clothe ourselves with the righteousness of the saints. You see, there's the righteousness of Christ that's imputed, but man, the righteousness of the saints is something that you labor in and labor towards. Second Corinthians chapter 5, we looked at this last week, verses 1 to 4. Paul says, we know if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, a house made, not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. And this is what we groan for. We earnestly desire to be clothed upon with our house, which is from heaven. If so be that being clothed, we should not be found naked. You say, man, is it possible for a Christian that stands before the Lord to still be naked? According to the Bible, yeah. And man, you're saved, you're covered in Christ's righteousness. But can I just tell you, when, when God looks at you, there's, there's a, a nakedness that still exists. You say, how does that happen? Well, it happens because, because there's no personal ministry. And, and so get that in your notes. Our, our white raiment represents our personal ministry. And we don't have time this morning. But if you continue in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the entire context verses 1 to 11 is the judgment seat of Christ. And because the context has to do with being clothed, and because the context has to do with the judgment seat of Christ, there's a potential to be shamed or unashamed at the judgment seat of Christ. See, see we as Laodiceans, we don't like that because that sounds really extreme. We would rather believe in the brand of Christianity that just says, well, once you're saved, you're good, man. You just live out your life. And listen, you'll never lose your salvation. You're born again. You're eternally secure in Christ. But can I just tell you, you can absolutely lose reward. And I would go a step further and say, you might get to lose raiment. You say, what does that even matter? Well, it matters in God's kingdom. And again, the question might, might prove that you may be go been going to the wrong counselor's. You better understand the judgment seat of Christ, biblically. You better understand it. The third thing that God challenges this church to buy is eye salve. He says, get by eye salve and anoint thine eyes with eye salve that thou mayest see. Remember, remember this church was blind even though they thought they could see. They were blind. 
They didn't have impaired vision. They didn't see at all. And so is the case in modern Christianity. We need to build in a little more buffer time in these sermons. I can't tell you how many times that I've tried to counsel people from the Word of God. And man, you open the book and you show them what God says. And man, it, they might as well be looking at a black hole. They can't see it. They, they can't see it. They can't understand it. They, they, don't, they don't hear really what God's saying to them. Listen, Laodiceans don't have impaired vision. The problem is we're blind. We don't see it all. And God says, listen, the only way that you're going to see is to anoint your eyes with eye salve. Well, how does that shake out? Well, let me give you the key, and I'll give you the verses to back it up. Eye salve in the Bible represents our personal time in the Word of God. Our personal time in the Word of God. Psalm 119 and verse 130 says, The entrance of thy words giveth light. It giveth understanding to the simple. Psalm 119 and verse 18 says, Open thou mine eyes, that, they, that I may behold wonderful, excuse me, wondrous things out of thy law. Do you understand that when you spend time in God's word and you open the book and you let the word of God get in your heart, it gives you a clarity, it gives you the ability to see what you cannot see in your flesh. We don't walk, we don't walk by sight, Christian. We walk by faith, and faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. And if you are ignorant or willingly negligent of time in this book, man, I love you. Listen, I love you, but you're blind. You're blind. And there ain't no amount of counseling, there ain't no amount of preaching, you see, God gives us his word to open our eyes, to illuminate, man, this is an area that needs attention in my life. But man, this is something I got to get from Christ myself. It's hard to pastor blind people. It's hard to lead blind sheep. I'm not saying I'm perfect. I'm just saying that we have pastors at our church, man, and we're trying to lead the way God intends us to lead this church. But man, if you're wandering around aimlessly in life with no spiritual direction or discernment, it's really hard. It's really hard to lead. The Laodiceans couldn't see their condition, and because they couldn't see their condition, they, they, they wouldn't heed the correction, and they didn't think they needed a solution. Okay. So let's, let's wind this thing down. So then the next statement Christ makes in verse 18 or verse 19 is, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. And man, listen, again, if you've sat through last week and this week, and maybe your perspective is, man, God's just mad, he's angry. Or maybe you walked in this morning not having a biblical understanding of who God is. You think he's just an angry God waiting to zap everybody from heaven He's waiting to, to burn backslidden Christians and zap. Okay, listen, nothing further from the truth could be said. Can you go back to that verse? As many as I love. You see, God's character and his nature is love. First John chapter 4 and verse 8 says, He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. It's his nature, it's his character. And so get this key in your notes. God's motivation for correction and for counseling is love, not anger. And some of you need to hear that. Because, man, you sit through church and you think God's angry at you. Or you sit through church and you think the preacher's angry at you. There's no anger. Let me say it harder. There's no anger. <laughs> Well, it sure sounds like it. <laughs> There's no anger because God is love. And so his character, his nature is love. Man, listen, you go back to the psalmist 
And over and over, David said, David said to God, Lord, don't, don't rebuke me in your anger. Don't chasten me in your displeasure. Because listen, if we were on the receiving end of that, God would zap us. Listen, if we got what, God, if, if we, got what we deserved because of our sin, God has every right to rebuke us and chasten us in his anger and his displeasure. Do you understand that? We're sinners. On, on the best day, we're sinners. And yet, man, as the psalmist cries out to God, we cry out to God, God, don't, man, God, don't rebu- rebuke me in your wrath. Don't chasten me in your displeasure. I wouldn't, I, can, I, couldn't with, I couldn't withstand it. God's motive is love, not anger. And maybe you're here today and you've heard preaching, you've heard teaching, you've received it as anger from God or anger from his messenger. Let me assure you from the word of God, that's not the case. God loves you. As your pastors, we love you. But man, we want you to walk with Christ. So here's God's methodology. How how does God work this out in this Laodicean church? Two ways that he does it. Number one, rebuke. And number two, chastening. He rebukes and he chastens. You say, man, this is kind of ending rough. (laughs) I know Laodicean, it's going to be okay We're going to make it hang in there. God rebukes and chastens those that he loves. Okay, so the word rebuke means to convict. It means to find fault with. It means to correct, to tell a fault. 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 2, when Paul instructs Timothy, a, a pastor, on his ministry, he says, preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. And so listen, one of the effects of God's word in my life and in your life, and, and by ex- extension, the, the, the role of a minister of God's word, it's to rebuke us. And I'd rather you preach something that makes me feel good so I can go to lunch on a, on a high. Well, man, listen, there's good stuff in the Bible that will make us feel like that, and we need to hear that. But can I also tell you that there are times where we need to be rebuked from God's word? Because if we're not careful, we'll be Laodicean. I'm rich, increased with goods. I got no need of nothing, man. Went to church. Let's go. <sighs> Titus chapter 2 and verse 15 These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise thee. And can I just tell you that doesn't mean that anyone that communicates God's word is above reproach or rebuke. As a matter of fact, the stakes are even higher. So anyone that would stand in a pulpit, anyone that would disciple somebody else, can I just tell you the standard of your rebuke and the measure and the accountability is even higher. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 19 to 20 says, Against an elder receive not accusation, but before two or three witnesses. Them that sin, rebuke before all, that others may fear. Man. God uses rebuke to lead us to repentance. Rebuke is the doorway to repentance, right? The second thing that God uses is chastening. Okay, when God rebukes us and we turn our ear down and we stop listening to the voice of God, we we stop listening to the, the conviction of God, we stop listening to the thing that we've offended or done wrong, Well, the next thing God does is he chastens us. It's just like your kids. Well, I hope it's like your kids. I don't know how it shakes out in your house. But man, you tell your kid to stop doing something. Stop doing that. Stop doing that, I'm going to spank you. Okay, I'm I'm tired of talking. I'm going to spank you now. Why did I spank you? Because you were disobedient, right? And I I I know we're in the 21st century, and I know that'll probably get censored on YouTube and Facebook, but I don't really care. There's biblical principles for parenting. There's biblical principles for raising children. There's biblical principles for chastening our children, biblically. Okay, Hebrews 12, verses 6 to 8, the Bible says, whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. Whom the, whom the Lord what? Okay, man, and again, listen, as a Laodicean, we, we immediately go to the rebuke and the chastening and think, man, God hates me. Jay hates me. Cody hates me. My discipler hates me. Bro, you're missing it, man. You're missing it. Whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, 
and he scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If you endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? But if you be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then you're bastards and not sons. And you say, whoa, man, that's a that's strong language. Is that in the Bible? Yes. And what God is saying in Hebrews chapter 12 is that God is a perfect father and he deals with his children perfectly out of a motivation of love and including chastening. And listen, the truth is, there's potential in this room that some of you have never been on the receiving end of God's chastening hand. And the reason why is because you're not truly saved. You're not truly born again because God's perfect chastening and his perfect love is reserved for his children. And man, if you're not a partaker of his fatherhood in your life, you're not a son or a daughter, and you need to come to Christ. You see, you can't live a disobedient Christian life and not have God's loving, chastening hand active. As a matter of fact, this is one of the ways you know you're saved, because God deals with you as with a son. Proverbs 19 and verse 18 says, Chasten thy son while there's hope, and let not thy soul spare for his. And can I just tell you, I know we're going over on time, but can I just tell you, listen, when God chastens us, it's a perfect chastening, but it's not enjoyable. Anybody ever been on the receiving end of that? Like if you're saved, you ought to raise your hand. Man, God's dealt with you. God's rebuked you. You turned down that voice. You turned down that conviction of the Holy Spirit of God. And God ramped up the chastening. Hebrews 12 verse 11 says it became grievous and your spiritual behind got sore from God whipping you. Are you guys communicating? Are, are we, do you understand what I'm talking about? Man, when it's happening, it seems like, man, God is just bringing the pain. It's grievous. It's sorrowful. It's affliction. I mean, listen, when I discipline my kids, if, if, if they answer, thank you, may I have another, I'm probably not doing it right. Uh, can I just tell you? Hello? If we're, if we're chastening our children while there's hope, don't let your soul spare for his crying in order to bring some affliction. And God works like that in our life. And man, as Laodiceans, we have a hard time with that. And yet, that grievous chastening, God's Word tells us, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. So the Laodicean church, they needed counseling. But it needed to come from Christ. And it needed to come from His Word. And God says, listen, your condition is not what you think it is. And if we're not careful as a local church, and if we're not careful as individual Christians in this room, well, we'll think it's better than it really is. And if we don't heed God's rebuke and repent at His chastening, well, man, it's going to be really rough when we see Him face to face. So the answer is, to the Laodicean, be zealous, therefore, and repent. Zealous means that you desire it, not because you're manipulated or God's forcing your hand. It means it's something that you want to change in your life. And the word repent means a change of mind that results in a change of direction. Can I tell you the grace in the Laodicean church? God gave them opportunity to repent. Can I, get, can I tell you the grace in this church? As of today, God's given us the opportunity to repent. And so I don't know how that lands in your lap, man, but, but I know for me, I want to I keep short accounts with the Lord. When God corrects me, I want to be open to his counsel. I want to keep short 
accounts with the Lord. I want to buy gold, which means I have to surrender to personal worship of God. I want to buy white raiment, which means I need to have a personal ministry. And man, I want to buy ISAP, which means I have to have a personal walk in the Word of God. How about you? How about you? Let's bow our heads. I know we're over, but can I just tell you, let's not rush what God needs to do in our heart. Father, we love you this morning, God, and and Lord, I pray.